Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 243 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the Venusian Day episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that the number of Earth days that it takes for the planet Venus to do one revolution, i.e. a Venusian day, is 243. And with all that wonderful little bit of Earth Venusian day knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim Earth Venusian Days, what kind of Scientology new wave bullshit are you trying to hawk on this here podcast? <laughs> I, f- I have no idea. Yes. So how are you, Matthew? What what have you been up to? Do you feel better? I know you uh, got tickled by the sickle, sickle, sickle cell. Did you, did you have sickle cell anemia or, or whatever that's called? Or were you tickled by the sick bug? I'm pretty sure that only african americans are afflicted with sickle cell anemia uh so i guess it wasn't that unless you're hiding something and we just discovered your true past ah it's entirely possible the parentage the parentage comes out i don't think i was doing too terribly last week was i i don't know i mean you just said you weren't feeling well the cockles in your throat was it lubricated uh, enough yes. for you to speak normally? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what was going on there. That in and of itself did work out. I guess I you could say I'm a okay. That's good. That's good. So, what about you? What about you? You know, I'm I'm doing well because I ate pie last night, and pie cures all sadness. Um, you could find oh, out your entire family was driven off a cliff, but then somebody hands you a coconut cream pie and uh, you know your, your day's a little bit better i mean you, you really can uh your day can't get worse if you're eating a coconut cream pie right unless you don't um, like coconut or cream yeah pie. i suppose unless you're like allerm- allergic to coconut or something but yeah um i think that uh pie can certainly among its many medicinal effects probably can help improve the mood and relieve the depression at least for a short while. We never really talked about pie on on the show, <laughs> which is kind of surprising because we like to talk about sexual things. And some people, because of the movie American Pie, associate pie with sexy. Th- well, I guess it's not really sexy things. I, uh, by sexy, I mean simulated sexy thing. I don't. I don't know. But besides that, what, what's your favorite pie? What is your go-to pie? Key lime. Really? Yes, key lime pie is my favorite pie, followed shortly by mince pie, actually, um, which is very, very hard to come by. Uh, if, if you go to places like Flying Saucer here in Houston or, or your, you know, your local pie shop, uh, because every city's got one, they, they do, they might be hard to find, but every city's got their own really good pie shop. Flying Saucer makes them at Christmas time. And so... Uh, I can get one then. But yeah, key lime. And here's your little tip for key lime pie, people. Your key lime pie should never be green. Your key lime pie 
should be yellow. So anytime that you see a key lime pie and it's green, that shit's pudding. It's just some fake-ass pudding that's been flavored like key lime, supposedly. And it's usually just lime. Key lime pie is made with real key lime juice, and that is yellow. Well, speaking of key lime pie, uh, have you ever heard of the sexual act called the key lime pie? <laughs> Coming from the guy who knows the grapefruit technique. <laughs> one man, one jar. Uh, you know, I, 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 am, I am stumped on the key lime pie. What is the key lime pie? I really don't think I should talk about this here. Uh, we oh, are, no. We're a family no, show. No, no, let's, let's do it. It's going to be a very long Captain Sulu oh my during this. But it, um, <laughs> according to UrbanDictionary.com, I didn't want to talk about this, but okay, key lime pie, a sexual act. It's where a guy takes a girl and has her lie down on her back with her head overhanging a bed or couch. I like how it says bed or couch. I mean, it can't be anything. It couldn't be a table. It couldn't be a nightstand. So, you know, from there, the guy starts to... Oh, my. Until she throws up. And as she is throwing up, he blasts... Oh, my. All over her something. Therefore, the colors mix together, resembling the colors of a key lime pie. And as the example here, Greg says... Hey, Joe. What did you and Allison do last night? Joe responds, Greg, I introduced her to the key lime pie. Both high, high five, five bro. bro. And they high five. Hashtag sex, dessert, hashtag key, hashtag lime, hashtag pie. <laughs> well, um, yeah, that's, uh. Oh, and there's I, more. I, I refuse to be influenced by that, and I will still enjoy key lime pie. Well, how about this? Another key lime pie refers to the over oh, no. or va- oh, no. passage. Usually smells like mold. <laughs> okay, it's, it smells like what? Moldy what? Moldy limes, I guess? Yeah. Oh, my. I'm guessing. Oh. After all, an offensive term. No. After all those tickle pickle fishies I did last night, I will never look at my key lime pie the same way again. Okay, I'm sorry. I think they're reaching there. <laughs> that just seems terrible. Yeah. There's a lot, you know, there are a lot of sexual things on Urban Dictionary called the key lime pie. The good thing about key lime pie, this is a test to how great key lime pie is. It is so good, it's not held down by one definition or term. That's how good key lime pie is. I refuse to subscribe to the Urban Dictionary reference to that in any regard. That's that's fine. I just thought it'd be funny. I don't either. I don't care. <laughs> so, now that we have thoroughly confused everyone, would we uh, like to go check in the old mail sack? Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. <laughs> and aren't you glad? Look at that. No, no, there is no castration noise. Yay! Success! We have not one, but two. Count them two! Ah, ah, ah. Two emails. Um, first up is from the wonderful and lovely Diana Weeks. She, uh, the subject is Akja. 
She says, hi guys, I finally finished watching Akja and I have, and have to say it was so bizarre that I can't decide if the writer director was mocking the vegetarians and GMO phobic of the world or was trying to make their point with dark humor. It was not really enjoyable for me and mostly sad and weird and that's saying a lot for me who enjoys dark twisted farces. Just the amount of F-bombs in a child's story, which made it not for children, was cringeworthy. I did like one line in the movie that made sense spoken by uh, Tilda Swinton's char character. It's cheap. They'll eat it. Wise words indeed. I'm just glad this flick was on Netflix. <laughs> I don't miss the money I <laughs> may, may, may have paid at a theater. <laughs> glad I was eating a totally veg salad while watching it too. Cheers, Diana. Oh, Tim, Tim, I, I don't think it was intentional, but I'm just glad this flick was on Netflix so I don't miss the money I may have paid at a theater. What? <laughs> well, it's funny because that's one thing we did not really talk about in depth when we were reviewing the movie. It it has a lot of childlike sensibilities to it, I think, because the girl, the, the child that the movie focuses on I mean, she's still a child, but she's still also True. very adult. She acts like a... Yeah, she's a 14-year-old, at least 14. We have to assume she's 14 to 15 in that range, given what, that they say it's been 10 years, and she they mention her being somewhere around the age of four when she first gets Akja. But she also behaved like a seven-year-old. Right. So... That was something that detracted from the experience for me. And I don't know why I just thought about this. Completely unrelated note. Holy crap. Dunkirk. Dunkirk kind of felt like the bullet of World War II movies. Whoa, you just like jumped. Yeah. No, it just literally popped into my head like that. I don't. Bear with me. Bear with me. All right. So. Bullet. Wait. So okay. Is, so are, are we are we putting Diana's thing on hold? We are. We're just putting okay. a pin. We're okay. just putting a pin in it, just for a moment. Okay. Just for a moment. Just for a moment. Sorry, Diana. Uh, Diana, we, we're we're not we're not going anywhere. So Bullet is a seventies police procedural. It was Steve Steve McQueen. Right. Correct. Steve Steve, Steve McQueen. McQueen. That's that's his birth name. <laughs> Steve the Steve McQueen. Um, but uh, and and. A lot of people remember it primarily for the great car chase scene in the film. But one of the things that people missed about it is that the actual flow of it is actually deliberate. And in that way, it's, it's actually kind of slow because they are trying to give you as within the realm of a movie, but they were trying to make it as close to reality as as they possibly could for true police procedure and i kind of feel a little bit about like a little bit about that about dunkirk now it's not changing the rating or anything but i really feel like that kind of helps kind of shape that and maybe that could have been the title of the episode since we didn't really have a title for it could have called it it's the bullet of world war ii movies yeah Anyway, Bullet's still a better movie all around, I think. <laughs> I, I I agree, but I, I noticed I just I just remember you know the movie was uh, you know somewhat slow, not dull, but you know somewhat slow. But so is real police work sometimes. We're gonna title this episode: Matt has a key lime pie moment. <laughs> Dunkirk is the bullet of World War II movies. There you go. It's done. It's done. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, that's not that's not long. Anyway, all right. So 
pulling the pin out and back to Diana. Yes, the whole Netflix thing with Akja and and the kid movie and the kid movie aspect to it. I was very surprised whenever they started cursing because, like, at the very beginning, Tilda Swinton is doing her whole spiel when she she's doing that opening monologue, that speech, mm-hmm. talking about, like, all the meat and yada yada. And the last thing she says is, it tastes fucking good. So It's something like that. I forget exactly. But that's the last thing she says, and she's basically looking right in the camera. And I remember hearing that and going... It really doesn't add anything to the movie. In fact, most of the language used in that movie doesn't add to it. It easily could have gone without the language. I, I, I'm, a, I have, I'm a huge stickler for movies, especially saying fuck all the time, for the purpose of saying fuck. Not necessarily they, they set out to purposely use fuck, but it, that's kind of what how I felt with, with Ockjaw. Like they were purposefully trying to make the movie for mature audiences. And I think because of that, it cheapens the movie. In that way, I can kind of see where Diana's definitely, where she's coming from. But I I think it was definitely in the tone. It just didn't fit the tone of the movie. I don't know, Matt, are you, do you feel the same at all? Because we really never talked about it before. No, I, I would definitely say that the tonal shift of the movie was definitely something that was very hard to, to peg. Because even after the whole F-bomb right there, and then it cuts to, you know, life in the woods and whatever, um, it, it did. It really kind of, uh, I, th- I think the idea was that it was just kind of trying to remind you that while the narrative framing device uh, of this farce is that of a kid's story, this isn't a kid's movie. And whether or not it succeeded, I, I mean, that's that's clearly going to be up to the audience member. I know that we definitely had some scores, you know, our scores reflected a, you know, not the greatest movie. Right. But I can I can definitely see where Diana's coming from on that. So show. But yeah. Keep the emails coming, dirty Diana. Dirty Diana. Nah. <laughs> there you go. All right. So Johnny White Trash also wrote us, and the subject line is, I was going to write something about The Matrix, but... And here is what he writes. Don't worry! This is about movies. I've been listening to Nine Inch Nails' latest DP since it dropped a couple of weeks ago and liked it enough to search it out on vinyl. When on the Nine Inch Nails store, I read this quote from Trent Reznor. Quote, The ideal way I'd hope a listener experience my music is to grab a great set of headphones, sit with the vinyl, drop the needle, hold the jacket in your hands, looking at the artwork with your fucking phone turned off. End quote. I had the same feeling when I heard that Chris Nolan says I have to watch his movie in an IMAX. These artists telling me I'm enjoying their art wrong. When I read the Nine Inch Nails quote, I decided not to buy the vinyl, and when I heard Chris Nolan's quote, I decided to wait for Dunkirk to come out on Blu-ray. For the most part, I listen to music digitally, and I watch movies on Blu-ray, and if that pisses off these pretentious creative types, so be it. Let me try to clarify one thing. I have not lost any respect for Trent Reznor or Christopher Nolan, but vinyl costs a lot, the cost of shipping to Canada is gross, and the closest IMAX to me is 300 kilometers away. Plus, my local theater is suck, so I guess I'll just have to listen slash watch the wrong way. Holy shit, this email feels like a mess! I hope I made my point well. 
It should be read as mild annoyance and not outright anger. The whole time I was typing this, I was wondering, are they making a pretentious point or are presenting reasonable points in a pretentious way? Thanks, guys. Hope this made sense. P.S. Yay for no castration noise. <laughs> Maybe that should be the episode title. <laughs> <laughs> Until <P.S>. next week. <laughs> P.S. Yay for no castration noise. Anyway, um, all right. So, um, I do think it's kind of interesting that people declared vinyl dead like 10 years ago. And oh, now, longer than 10 years ago. No, no, they, they, because they had always had it even, even 10 years ago that, um, up until about 10 years ago, it was still heavily used in clubs and stuff, but it started kind of falling away. And then with the advent of the iPhone, basically almost making the iPod obsolete. Uh, and MP, and then of course with smartphones in and of themselves starting to make MP3 players obsolete, pe- people were like, holy crap, where is vinyl ever going to go? And then of course it's kind of started its little underground hipster renaissance. And now I think it's, it's back over a billion dollars last year. Hey, I buy vinyl and I think it's significantly better than buying a CD because normally with the bi- with the vinyl, God, with the vinyl, you also get like a digital download with it. So it's like on top of like having the vinyl, you know, the records, and then having the packaging, you also can download it digitally if, you know, so you can listen to it wherever you want. So it's kind of, I, a, it's not a bad deal. Hey, you, you know what? It. If you have, if you have the space for your collection and you have the money for the, to outlay for the turntables and stuff, which it's not the initial cost of the turntable that ever gets you. It's replacing that fucking needle. And Those even that's are not fucking expensive. They can be, but even that's not too bad. I mean, you can still buy a D. De- it all depends on what turntable you get. Like I have an Audio Technica, and the needle it came, the stylus it came with, is a, an Audio Technica stylus, and it sounds okay, you know. And I think those, if you just buy them separately, it's like twenty five bucks or something. But I, you're absolutely right because I can't afford these three hundred dollar. Freaking styluses. Yeah, and the last time that I bought a stylus was actually about 2007. I, I had come across, back in the 90s, I, I was in a record shop, of all things, a, a secondhand music store. Because, yes, once upon a time, those existed. <laughs> Not that they don't anymore, but at any rate, and I came across a really rare copy of uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, uh, uh, Elton John, and I was able to get it for like, I don't remember what made the copy so special, but it was something that I recognized because my stepdad really enjoyed it. And I got it for like seven bucks, but it was worth way more than that. And I gave it to him for Christmas. And um, to give you an idea, this was back when I was married to my first wife and my son now is 19. So this was a long time ago. Um, And then about and like 10 years go by and we somehow landed on the topic of this record. And I'm like, well, how many times have you listened to it? And he's like, I've never listened to it. And I'm like, what the fuck? And he's like, the record player is broken. I'm like, go buy a record player. And he's like, do you have any idea how expensive they are? And I'm like, well, what's the matter with it? He's like, the stylus is, is messed up. And I'm like, you just need the, you mean that needle thingy? And he's like, yeah. I was like, well, I'll just get you a needle. He's like, all right. $83, bro. $83 to, I was like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? So that was the last time that I bought a stylus and, um, you know, but I mean, I get it. I, I can, I totally respect vinyl. I love the sound and the feel of vinyl. I just, and, and maybe one day when I'm 
a grown up again with a real job and stuff, I'll try and get back into vinyl. But I just, for me, having it all on my phone and on my computer is better. Where the fuck are we going with this? Um, Johnny's email. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Johnny's email. I don't think that it's about the right way or the wrong way. I just think that something that I've said a lot is that um, an artist can intend anything that they want for whatever their medium is, right? If it be it painting, uh, be it sculpting, uh, movies, TV, music, whatever, whatever your medium is that you that you present your art. You can you can intend for it to mean one thing, but once you have let it go, it's no longer what you meant for it to be. It's what the audience, it's what your audience takes from it. It's it, and that's what it means to them. And that is the value. That is both the greatest value of art and in a way, it's almost its ultimate undoing. Because here we have someone like Johnny who it's not about respect or not disrespect. It's just this is the idea behind truly mastering it from the artist himself. Do it this way. I, I really feel like doing this way is the way to truly enjoy it. Now, does that mean that it's automatically less? I mean, by virtue of direct examination, I guess so. But not to the point that it's meant to belittle someone who enjoys it differently this is just what Renzner felt is the same is the way to best enjoy it same with nolan nolan has a true love and appreciation for the history of cinema and what it meant to really have movies be an experience not just i'm going to the movies he understands what it was like to have that whole glitz the glamour to really make it an event even when you were just going on a Saturday afternoon. Think about when you were a kid and how, you know, you, you went to the movie theater with your mom and your dad for the first time that you went by yourself when you were like 10 or 11 or something like that. Um, not that too many people can do that anymore, but, um, and, and the wonder, right? And the escape that you were able to have when you would go and see. These are the things that Nolan wants to create. And he's able to use He's able to use his clout He's to do things like film and IMAX. So, of course, he wants you to see it in IMAX to get the full extent of the product. Now, that's not to say that if you choose to do it differently, you'll miss the point entirely. But I do think that to a certain extent, artists, I don't think they have an obligation but I think that they, I think it would be a good idea, at least, to kind of qualify these things, you know? Oh, you know, I'm sure Nolan would, would not belittle Johnny and go, well, you better go fucking drive 300 kilometers away. Of course not. <laughs> well, I mean, they also don't understand. I really don't think a lot of these guys, they don't keep it in mind that some people have to fucking drive a ways to get to an IMAX theater or Correct. they have to pay an exorbitant amount of fees or tax or whatever to get a vinyl. So I, I think that's one thing that they don't keep in mind because I think they're constantly around people like, I mean, I mean, I guess to be fair, like people like me who, you know, like I, I'm a big movie guy and a music guy. I live in LA and I'm able to drive 
you know, 20 minutes away on a Sunday morning or Saturday morning and go and see a movie in IMAX. I, I, like sure. a lot of these guys just don't understand that that's not, not necessarily they don't understand. It's just they're not used to, I guess, talking to people. I mean, I don't know if that really is the right thing to say. Well, no, I think, I, I do. I think, I think that they, uh, because they choose to live their lives in, in such a way that these kinds of experiences are easily accessible to them. So like, I mean, Trent Reznor in LA or in New York or in London, Christopher Nolan again, London, LA, New York, all of these big places that you can go, uh, that are great for filmmaking, great for the stage, um, that, that help promote all these arts. And then of course you have the ability, if you want to go out into the middle of nowhere, and get away from it all, but you have that venue to immediately go back and have access to everything as well. Um, I, I, I just think that, uh, that's again, I don't think that it's intentionally going out there to belittle anyone. Um, but at the same time, I think it might be a good idea to try and qualify those things. I, I don't, I don't say that they're obligated to, mm-hmm. uh, because it is their, it is their art. And if they want, you know, to say the best way to do it, it's kind of like me. You know, it's not, I'm not saying that cooking a steak is artwork, but when I cook a steak, I tell people, you know, the best way to have it is medium rare. And if you want it more cooked more than that, I don't know what's wrong with you, but okay. So kind of the same thing. Here I am comparing music to movies. <laughs> Into your tier steak. <laughs> yeah, made by very creative, influential people <laughs> to my grilling and smoking of meats. Whenever but, I uh, heat my Hormel chili, <laughs> I want it to be scolding hot. I don't want this lukewarm <laughs> business. Wait, uh, you want to eat it right out of the pot? No, it has to sit in your bowl and cool off for an hour and a half. That's how I heat up my Hormel chili. All right. Well, thank you very much, Diana. Thank you so much, Johnny, for those wonderful bits of email. And we hope that uh, you'll write to us soon. And we hope that anyone else feels the need. Please send us an email to the show at slscast.com. We did have some more Twitter followers next week, so uh, this last week, rather. So thank you again to all the people who followed us on Twitter. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, we would love for that as well. You can do that by following at the SLS cast. So I think now that we've killed enough time and inadvertently killed enough time in our email. I like this little Checking email impromptu set. discussion thing, though. You know, it, it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. We had great submissions. That's what that's what it was. We, we had, had great submissions, submissions, but meh commentary. <laughs> it's, it's kind of, shh, don't give away the show's secret. <laughs> um, <laughs> we rely on right. you. That's right. All right. Well, then let's go ahead and jump into some copycat throwdown. It's it's the the copy copy cat cat throwdown throwdown. That's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Well, that's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Stop it. Stop it. No, no. Seriously, stop it. Oh, right. Like. Stop repeating? Stop repeating. Right. Oh, uh, okay. I'm going to kick gonna your kick ass. ass. Throw down. Yes, yeah, so 
The movies, again, Deep Blue Sea, Lake Placid, Anaconda. It should be noted, Anaconda did come out in 1997, whereas Lake Placid and Deep Blue Sea both came out in 1999. However, uh, the movies still do kind of combine the same themes, if you will. Uh, You know, you've got ensemble cast versus some kind of overriding horror threat, right? So in Deep Blue Sea, of course, it's the, you know, super awesome sharks, um, you know, super smart sharks trying to cure uh, Alzheimer's and whatnot. Um, in Lake Placid, they are, of course, um, having the ensemble cast versus the uh, crocodile. And then finally in Anaconda, they are, of course, going after a giant anaconda. All right, everybody, double check your gear. Make sure it's all on board. Pray you didn't forget your bug spray. They have come to the world's most isolated jungle to explore the unknown Amazon. Ready? I think so. And conduct scientific research to prove the existence of a long-lost tribe. Shinoshama worship giant snakes and anacondas as gods, protectors. What is this? Anaconda skin. Is snakes up there this big? This skin is three or four years old. Whatever shed it has grown since then. Snakes don't eat people. Oh, they don't? That's it, man. I'm getting the hell back to L.A. It's always good to be prepared. Now, they are the ones being watched. Do you hear that? The ones being followed. Nobody move. The ones being hunted. There's something down there. That's right. No, I really mean it. I really mean it, too. But not by anything human. If we help him, then he will help us get out of here alive. Get on the face! You're gonna get us all killed! Anaconda. When you can't breathe, you can't scream. Versus? It has existed since prehistoric times. It was worshipped by primitive cultures. It can kill a man with one crushing bite. We heard a man was bit in half. Any recent bear attacks? Bears don't attack people underwater. Probably a fever then. What was that? Whatever's out there, he shot with this, he's dead. Oh no. Sheriff, how many deputies you got? You came here to help you find it. We can't let him kill it. Experience a few parts mystery. Do you have any theories why he's here? Honestly, I don't know. And a few parts... <laughs> missing. It's a human toe. Is this the man who was killed? He seemed taller. Oh, my God. Bill Pullman. Shoot him. No! How much of a wacko is this guy? Bridget Fonda. Mother! Oliver Platt. Maybe swam back up! Maybe not have this feeling everything's totally safe this summer the earth's oldest creature has just found a new home lake placid versus tell me mr franklin have you ever known anyone with alzheimer's no what if you could end all that suffering with a single pill? Give me till Monday morning, 48 hours. I'll give you results that'll skyrocket your stock price. In the most advanced research facility in the world, 
Wow. Beneath its glassy surface, a world of gliding monsters. A team of specialists is working against the clock. Did someone order the fish? On an experiment to benefit mankind. Sharks never show any loss of brain activity as they age. We're this close to the reactivation of human brain cells. But before they can save millions of lives... Tell me I didn't see that. They recognize that gun. It's impossible. Sharks do not swim backwards. They can't. They'll have to find a way to save their own. Just what the hell did you do to those sharks? Did you feel something? Jim and I use gene therapies to increase their brain mass. What is that? As a side effect, the sharks got smarter. Somebody, please, tell me what that is. The movies, for me, I, I don't know, Anaconda, for me, was the worst of the three. I just could not get into it. Um, I did see it when it came out in the theaters way back in the day. I just, I don't know, just really never, it's really never done it for me. Um, and, of course, for those who have seen the movie, you know, wink, wink, right? Um, I just, I don't know, it just really didn't do it for me. And I know that uh, Tim has a different setup and everything as far as how he's going to lay out the movies. But for me... Um, it really came down to Deep Blue Sea and Lake Placid. And, uh, I, I found that it was Lake Placid that was really the best for me. I just thoroughly thought that they, that the, it, the movie itself was fully self-aware. At no point did it ever try and take itself too seriously. Yet at the same time, it, uh, it acknowledges its tropes and uses those to make the movie work. Um, Deep Blue Sea was trying way too hard to be the thriller, to, to really carry forward and try and make that aspect of the, uh, idea work. And, um, you know, it, that, that's just kind of how it goes. Um, it, you know, with Deep Blue Sea, you've got, um, the, you got them with genetically modified brain, uh, shark brains and everything, right? Because they're trying to do the, uh, you know, trying to cure Alzheimer's and everything, right? Um, but other than that, you're, you're then kind of just there. Uh, they then just go way too much into the taking everything too seriously. Um, and yet they don't, they don't seem to fully acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is how ludicrous it is. Um, now, outside of the, you know, the, the morale scene, right? The morale boosting scene where Samuel L. Jackson gets up there and he's like, and we're going to take those sharks and then, right? And chops them in half, right? Okay. That scene in and of itself will always be fantastic. But outside of that, it, it still just seems to really try and push the idea that this is re- that this is serious and everything. Um, and, and there's not as much room, there's not as much wiggle room to have the fun that you need to have with that kind of a movie. You move over to Lake Placid, which is of course where they have everybody is just, I mean, it's a, it's a crocodile in a lake in Maine. 
right? I mean, it, even the premise is outlandish. Um, and yet everybody seems to kind of roll with it and they just have a good time and do it. You've got a great cast in Lake Placid as well. You've got Bill Pullman, Bridget Fonda, Oliver Platt, Brendan Gleeson. And yes, of course, Betty White is in this movie, but they just seem to know when to push the envelope in terms of letting it go versus pushing the envelope in being serious for the sake of the scene. And I think that's ultimately what makes the movie work. And I know that Tim uh, definitely is, you know, will, will want to point out um, the whole Oliver Platt thing, which is true. Oliver Platt's playing Oliver Platt, but this was at a time when it was good for Oliver Platt to play Oliver Platt. So, um, I, I, I do. I think this is, I just think that this film in and of itself was the more enjoyable film simply because it was the most fun and because of it being self-aware in that regard. So I gotta go with Lake Placid as the winner here. Um, and then Anaconda being the worst. I haven't broken any laws. Oh, but you have, ma'am. You lied to us. That could be obstruction of justice. A man has been killed in part because he's silence. I could make out a charge of reckless endangerment. And I'm sure Peter would be annoyed at how you treat your cows. The reason I lied, if I told you the truth, you'd hunt it down and kill it. Which seems to be exactly what you're trying to do. How long have you been feeding this thing? Six years. Six years. Well, Bernie was out fishing and it followed him home. So we threw it some scraps. Well, he didn't seem to bother anybody. He became kind of like a, a pet who lives in the wild. He just appeared. You have no idea how he arrived here. No, do you? Well, your husband Bernie, you didn't by any chance lead him to the lake blindfolded. If I had a dick, this is where I'd tell you to suck it. Tim. Tim, favor us, regale us even with your, with your list, which I know is not, <laughs> not the same as mine. <laughs> no, in fact, Lake Placid was my least favorite of 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 the bunch and it could be also because i i actually watched lake placid for the first time a handful of years ago i had a better experience growing up watching deep blue sea and anaconda and it could be the age thing i was a little younger when anaconda came out i was what like maybe 10 or so and i remember going to see anaconda with my grandfather who was very much into movies and just the idea of ooh these people are trapped out in this jungle, in this snake, this anaconda is hunting them down one by one. There's something exciting, but he loved the the adventure stuff. And I thought, oh, okay, it sounds fun. We got to the movie pretty early, and I was so scared about the idea of watching this killer giant anaconda. I said, no, I, I don't want to see this. So he goes, okay, well, Volcano is playing. Why don't we go see Volcano instead? So we go in to go see Volcano, and within the first five minutes of Volcano, I get freaked out by Volcano. I'm like, no, I'd rather go see Anaconda. So then we go and see Anaconda, and I still get freaked out by Anaconda. With Anaconda, it's, it might just be more of like a nostalgia thing for me, but I did go back and rewatch all of these recently. Again, I watched Lake Placid for the first time just a, a handful of years ago. Therefore, I don't have that childhood. Other than the trailer, 
I remember the trailer being something that I, I saw a lot as a kid and was really wanting to w- see the movie. I just, my parents never rented it and none of my friends really had it. So it's probably because at the time it was reviewed so poorly. I do like some of the things that Matt said that he really liked about it. Like I do like the simple plot and I do like how they are self-aware, but at the same time, it feels pretty choppy that they were just kind of cutting to the chase and they left out a lot of character building. But when it comes to the self-aware stuff, it felt like they also tried reworking the movie at the last minute because they realized they didn't have a good movie. Maybe they reshot a couple things to make the movie feel more like a comedy. Because I really don't get that vibe that it's really that much of a comedy, other than some of the characters like Bridget Fonda and Oliver Platt. Oliver Platt plays a very Oliver Platty type of character, kind of chauvinistic, kind of an asshole, and he's always the quippy comeback. He he can always get away with cursing in PG-13 movies, Oliver Platt can, it always seems like him. Bridget Fonda was just poorly cast. She just really wasn't all that good. Now, if she played like Kim Cattrall in Big Trouble in Little China, where when I was younger, I really didn't understand what she was going for, and, and I thought she was way too handy and really bad, and it wasn't until I got older when I realized she's playing like the classic heroine that we would see in the 40s and 50s type of movies. She's doing a riff kind of on that. But, I mean, if Bridget Fonda kind of did that in this movie, to an extent, but not as good, and she doesn't commit herself to it. I I could probably cut him down, but there's this odd look of mayhem on his upside-down face. Hank? Yes? Are you all right? Could you cut me down? Do you promise that you won't attempt to injure me? I have no interest in ever looking at you, Hector. Okay. Just uh, pull him down. It's a counterweight. Better oh. get the knife. You know, if I remember it was there, I never would let you walk that way. Okay. All right, it's over. It's over. Remember, you promised not to hurt him, so I lied. While I'm talking about the poorly casted cast. Brennan Gleeson, he is Irish, if I remember correctly. Brennan Gleeson, who slips into this like tough-sounding East City coaster, trying to overcompensate when his Irish lisp, you know, slips out. Like he's supposed to be like the small town country sheriff type, not this East Coaster kind of tough guy. You guys know Brennan Gleeson. He does have this Irish lisp that comes out every once in a while. And I don't know if maybe a lisp is the right thing to call it, but that's really the only thing I can compare it to, really. And what's different about these characters and these performances compared to John Voight in Anaconda is that at least John Voight was so committed to the role. He he created this character... Even though it was completely wrong and bad, it was consistent from beginning to end. And I really don't think there's any arguing there. It was consistent from beginning to end that by the end of the movie, I kind of bought it. And it really didn't bother me all too much. But with Lake Placid, there is just so many other things other than the characters, whether it be plot lines, whether it be character motivations. Uh, Like Bridget Fonda's character has this can of Raid that she uses as bug spray just to show you that she's a city girl out of her element. And it was just a little too ridiculous because she's spraying this stuff. Then you have Bill Pullman 
and Brandon Gleason, who's watching her do this, and they're not really reacting to it, and it's a fucking can of raid, you know? So it would have been, like, nice if they naturally acted to their environments as if they were actually in and experiencing that environment. And that, at least for me, is what separated this film from the other two. This one felt more old-fashioned without meaning to be old-fashioned and too stagey that it just felt like kind of like a mistake, like they weren't really sure which direction to take this movie, especially when it comes to the giant man-eating crocodile. Like, at times, they are nearly feet away from the lake, which, which is where the crocodile's at, and it doesn't seem like a concern to these people. Why would they, whenever they get together and they're, trying, they're doing this like manhunt, I guess, to try to find this crocodile when Oliver Platt shows up, they build this camp so close to the lake. And you kind of wonder, like, why is their camp so close to this water? And why are these people having this party at this campsite so close to the water? And why are they getting drunk at this party? And why are they dancing to Tom Jones so loud so close to this lake at this party? And why is Oliver Platt being this amazing crocodile hunter taking a leak nearby this lake at the middle of the night when they know there is a man-eating crocodile in this lake. It's just things like that that doesn't make sense. And I guess one could argue, like, oh, it's the characters. Everybody's in on how campy this movie is. And even if that's so, in order for there to be stakes and in order for there to be a reason for us to watch this movie and to really care about it, because this movie uses, like, you don't see the alligator a whole bunch. They do a lot of the jaw stuff where there's a lot of insinuation and tense building you know in order for us to buy into this we have to believe they're really put in a tense possibly deadly situation so you really need these characters to be kind of smart so when you're by the lake you kind of expect them to take precaution and not joke around and with oliver platt whenever you're told he is like this crocodile hunter you need an idea of why he is this crocodile hunter but really all you get is that he is just a pretentious fucking asshole when it comes to lake placid I just needed more to it. With Deep Blue Sea, I mean, right off the bat, sharks are the key to curing Alzheimer. And you have these people going to this remote compound in the deep sea. You know, like, regardless if there were super sharks or not, wouldn't it be totally, like, unsafe to be on that deep sea compound thing when there's a horrible storm? Because that's the thing. They know there's a horrible storm coming, and they're all on this deep sea compound. And on top of that, there are these super sharks, these superman-eating sharks surrounding them. And yet, it's okay. Even Samuel L. Jackson, where in this movie he's playing the quiet, well-spoken, methodical type. He's this corporate guy who owns this drug company. And yet, he has no hidden agenda, so he's not a bad guy. Even he's not really questioning things. And I think if Samuel L. Jackson played the character more like Samuel L. Jackson, like he does in Snakes on a Plane, the movie would have had a little bit more draw to it, and not as like it's taking itself too seriously. But when it comes to the special effects, it's still more entertaining than Sharknado, and they still look a little bit better than Sharknado, surprisingly. And this movie came out almost 20 years ago. There are surprises in the movie. The whole Sam Jackson ever giving his speech, getting eaten, is such a very good, startling surprise. When I first saw that, it scared the shit out of me. Even when I went back to rewind the videotape. No, I guess it was DVD at that time. Yeah, I had a DVD player at the time. So when I went back to rewatch it and played it again, it still freaked me out. So it's a very effective shot. I mean, when you watch it now, it kind of is, if you don't know what to expect. But if you're anticipating it from beginning to end, it's nothing. Ah! 
That's enough now, from all of you! You think water's fast? You should see ice. It moves like it has a mind. Like it knows it killed the world once, it got a taste for murder. When the avalanche came, it took us a week to climb out. And somewhere, we lost hope. Now, I don't know exactly when we turned on each other. I just know that seven of us survived the slide, and only five made it out. Now, we took an oath that I'm breaking now. Swore that we say it was the snow that killed the other two. But it wasn't. Nature can be lethal. But it doesn't hold a candle to man. Now, you've seen how bad things can get and how quick they can get that way. Well, they can get a whole lot worse. So we're not going to fight anymore. We're going to pull together and we're going to find a way to get out of here. First, we're going to seal off this... And then when this movie, when it comes to characters, you have LL Cool J who has this quippy, foul-mouthed parrot who's his buddy. He turns out to be the only remaining cook. But very much like Lake Placid, the similarities between the the evil creature, you know, with Lake Placid, the crocodile, the physics of the whole situation doesn't really make sense. When you fall in the water, these predators should be on you like that, so fast. You see these creatures in the water so close to them, and this is why these actors in, in either of these movies, they're trying to get away from them, so they're climbing up a shelf in the kitchen, or they're climbing up their, their helicopter, and they're looking down, and oh shit, the alligator, or the crocodile, or the shark's right there. You know, suddenly they're freaking out so much they fall off the object they're on, land right in the area where the creature is, and yet the creature is not there to kill them. It just doesn't make sense, because it should. Usually... Michael Myers is there, or Jason is there, or Freddy Krueger is there. Why not the fucking, like, super shark or the mega crocodile, you know? Why isn't that there? But then with Anaconda, despite its faults, despite Jennifer Lawrence's really bad acting, and you kind of question, like, with movies made in the mid to late 90s, when you're dealing with a film crew or a documentary crew stuck in a particular situation... Why are they all played by people who would never be in that situation, you know, or who would never have that job? Because they really don't take it seriously, and they they all kind of want to just fend for themselves when it comes to it. They're very selfish, I guess. But from beginning to end, Anaconda is exactly what it set out to be. It's entertaining. The snake itself is the predator. It's going to be after you. If you fall in the water, it's going to be there. And then, of course, it does take some liberties to build tension. Very much like Lake Placid, the animatronics are great. The ending of Lake Placid, I really liked. That last fight scene with the crocodile and the helicopter, I thought that was really cool. When it comes to a well-made movie with tension, with genuine scares, I have to give it to Anaconda. And that's where I'm going to land with Copycat Throwdown. For me, it is 1997's Anaconda. Yes! All right, so there you have it again. I choose Lake Placid, and Tim chooses 
Anaconda. And so next week, I think we're just going to be kind of focusing on the news. I don't know that we'll try and have the bonus segment. So just uh, if it happens, it truly will be bonus and it will happen. So without further ado, I believe it's time for the movies. And therefore, we will do... The Movie We And this week's movie is, of course, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Yes, the 2017 French science fiction action adventure film written and directed by Luc Besson and stars Dane DeHaan, Clara Delavigne, Clive Owen, Rihanna, Ethan Hawke, Herbie Hancock, Chris Wu, and Rutger Hauer with a special appearance, if you're looking for him, by John Goodman. Um, so... This movie here, I gotta say, was definitely, I was definitely excited by the fact that this movie says, um, this movie definitely is helped by the fact that I took my daughter with me. Um, and, and much like Kong Skull Island in that regard, it really did help because I think that and again, this part, this time though, it wasn't about worrying about being jaded as much as just recognizing where the fun of the movie exists. The, the movie is definitely, there, there is nothing that you can't say that this is not a Luc Besson film. And it definitely has a reliance, an over-reliance on technology. And it is definitely hokey. Really hokey, corny, ultra corny in some parts. Uh, there's also definitely frustrating levels in regards to some of the characters and their motivations, which goes kind of more to the writing than anything else. But damn it, it's fun. And looking at my daughter experiencing this kind of stuff really helps open my eyes to see just exactly how I would have felt seeing a movie like this for the first time. And how... I remember taking those experiences and really going and growing in cinema and stuff. And while, you know, when you're 9 and 10 and 11 years old, you know, and you're not really looking at Citizen Kane for the value of it being Citizen Kane, so you discover those movies later, but it, it, but it, it, it still falls to movies when you're that age, like Valerian and the City of the, to kind of go, wow, movies are so cool. And, and to look into things that you wouldn't look into normally. And as your tastes grow, leading you to the things like Citizen Kane and whatnot. And it's watching that viewpoint through my daughter that really helped ground me for this movie because the movie is like I said, it's a Luc Besson film, right? It's taking place in the 28th century, all right? We've got Alpha, which is a space station that actually started as the ISS. I mean, this literally started as the ISS here in, in you know, flying around or orbiting around Earth even as we speak. And they keep building onto it, right? As more uh, cultures and more uh, countries start to develop their own space programs and their own things. It keeps getting bigger and bigger and eventually aliens come. And this forms Alpha because as the alien cultures come and meld to us and the space station gets bigger and bigger, it eventually has to be released out of Earth's orbit for fear that it will actually get pulled into Earth and crash land. 
And thus, Alpha becomes the city of a thousand planets, uh, where millions upon millions of uh, species and people are, uh, are, are have come together to live in harmony and actually kind of grow the universe um, in, in probably what the truest vision uh, of, of, of Star Trek would have been. So, I mean, it's really cool in that regard. I, really and truly, I, I love the setup for this movie. And I thought that the opening was pretty damn fantastic in that regard. Um, so here we are 800 years in the future, and we have no idea what it's going to look like. So I guess, why can't it look like this? Um, we have a planet that is... Uh, tribal in its, uh, still in its tribal stages and everything that ends up getting destroyed. And somehow a portion of this planet, uh, gets, gets sucked into a black market deal. And this is where Valerian comes in. Valerian is, works with his partner. He's a major. She's, uh, Loreline is his partner. Uh, and she's a sergeant. And they are working together to stop this black market deal, which then leads them on the odyssey that, uh, that in regards to this planet that was destroyed and how it's going to affect Alpha. Because at this point, there is also a threat on Alpha where they don't understand what is going to happen, but this threat could potentially destroy all of Alpha. And that's pretty much the movie in a nutshell. Now, um, again, I really found that this movie is a... I don't know. It just seems, it just seems that it is very Luc Besson, right? And I just wasn't really... I, I really tried to, I really had to struggle with a lot of the hokiness of the movie because, um, and, and it, it's, it's that it's just in some ways as much fun as it is, it's just too simple. And the overlance on technology, it, it is glaring and jarring at certain aspects. But then when they bring it out of the CGI realm and back into practical effects and they kind of meld the two, at that point, the special effects really do work well. And it's really kind of interesting to see how the two blend. But when it's standing on its own as pure CGI, so for example, um, there's a there's a beach scene towards the beginning of the movie, and it just it just looks really artificial, right? I mean, it's it's and it's very saccharine um, because it, in its in its presentation and with the writing during that particular scene, it's also pretty terrible. But again, you watch this stuff, and I and I channel it through my through my daughter who's like just jaws dropped in in amazement at this stuff and i'm like okay well let me take a step back and look at it from that angle and it becomes good again um i have to give this movie at the end of the day i have to give this movie four stars and the reason that i give this movie four stars is because despite the fact that there is an over-reliance on CGI and there is that hokiness and everything, and it is a very Luc Basson movie in writing and in direction, it is fun. It, you just cannot deny that the movie is fun. And it's because of that fun factor. Um, I, I do have to say that the star rating, I stand by the fact that the movie's fun and I stand by everything that I said, but I, I have to say that really experiencing it with my daughter, experiencing it with someone who hasn't ever seen a Luc Besson movie, 
helped a lot and and did probably boost that star rating a little bit. But if you think back all the way back to Fifth Element, which is what most Northern American audiences are film are are are, are at least familiar with when it comes to Luc Besson, for its day, it was also you know very much a Luc Besson movie. It was very much re- had a heavy and heavy if not an over reliance on special effects uh and technology and was also really hokey in parts and then was still just a hell of a lot of fun and i and i feel that valerian uh really kind of becomes the spiritual sequel in that regard so four stars for this movie take it away tim four stars Wow, I was honestly not expecting you to like it as much. Uh, that's great, I, I, I guess. But before I get into my review, I do have a couple questions for you. Is that okay? Oh, question! Yes. Were there any annoyances on your end? Were you annoyed by any other performances like Valerian's or... Bubble, why not? Rihanna plays Bubble, and that one guy, I can't remember the actor's name, uh, I think he played the Green Goblin in the Spider-Man movies, he, he, he was Valerian. What did you think? Were you annoyed at all with his very wooden, stiff, bro-y take on the character of Valerian? Do I have any annoyances? Am I annoyed by either Valerian or Bubbles? Bubbles. You know, I can't believe... I can't believe, Tim, that you, that you of all people didn't buy into bubbles. That just makes me sad. Makes me sad. No, um, I, I do have to say, again, that's the hokiness. And Valerian didn't bother me except when he was too busy. Marry me. I love you. Yeah. When he was doing that shit, God, that annoyed the piss out of me. And again, that's where that hokiness comes into the to the writing and stuff. That was the stuff that caused me to, you know, be irritated. And it would have hurt the star rating more, except for that fun factor that bounces back on on, on edge. And it's the same with Bubbles. And thankfully, though, Bubbles was Bubbles had more to do with the over reliance on technology that I mentioned before. Um, and kind of really encapsulates the, uh, the, it, it kind of encapsulated everything. The very Luke Besson qualities that the movie has, the overlands on technology, and the hokiness. But, since Bubbles really is just a plot device, I didn't mind so much. And, I hope that answers your question. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets very well might be the most frustrating movie of 2017. Directed by French filmmaker Luc Besson, Valerian has been touted as the visual effects movie of the summer, the most original sci-fi film in years, and the most expensive French film ever made. With the budget just over 177 million United States dollars. Reviewing this flick about a week and a half after its original US release date, which was July 21st, its current US box office intake sits at $31 million, and its foreign box office is at $29.5 million. Now, one could accurately predict that Valerian will be a box office bomb and, more than likely, 
one of the worst performing big budget movies of the decade, and will forever be associated with the bombs that were 2011's John Carter, 2013's The Lone Ranger, and 2015's Jupiter Ascending. Now, with the runtime clocking in at around 137 minutes with credits, I sat in my semi-comfortable movie theater seat at a Cinemark in the South Bay area, where many of the 20-ish people surrounding me were constantly either chopping on popcorn or unwrapping crinkling plastic. Now, those unwelcome natural audience sounds might have gone unnoticed if the theater's surround sound wasn't unfortunately too quiet, a common complaint I've made about this theater as I experienced the same exact thing when I went to go see Baby Driver there. Now, I'm a science fiction fan, so I went into this flick hoping to see something different and inventive. Luc Besson has a record of repeating himself with his films and ripping characters and plot lines straight from other movies. His 2012 sci-fi action flick, Lockout, went to court for its story and lead character, pulling too much from John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Now, the original Valerian was a comic strip, and that comic strip ran from 1967 until 2010, and that comic strip inspired many, many filmmakers, like George Lucas, for example. And George Lucas apparently got the idea for the clone army and the cantina and the the Darth Vader unmasking from the Valerian comic strip. Even Luc Besson was influenced when he was making The Fifth Element in the mid-90s. You see, Luc Besson used the original comics artist, and his name is Jean-Claude Miseries, M-E-Z-I-E-R-E-S, I I know I'm mispronouncing it, but Jean-Claude Miseries, to work on The Fifth Element. So he had the original comics artist to come and work in the art department, which is why there are so many visual similarities between Valerian and The Fifth Element. I didn't want to be disappointed by another Luc Besson movie, because I usually am disappointed. There is no doubt that Luc Besson has an entertaining, creative vision, but I just think he has trouble with articulating that vision via the dialogue and characters for a serious, movie-going audience. I was hoping, with a $200 million budget... And with the free reign to put whatever he wanted up on that screen, I was hoping that Valerian might make for some delightful sci-fi entertainment, despite all the negative critical reviews. I mean, I did, in fact, at least visually enjoy the almost universally loathed John Carter and the Wachowskis' Jupiter Ascending. I mean, it's a little embarrassing to admit that I enjoyed watching those movies, but hey, I mean, visually they are entertaining, yet deeply flawed. But from beginning to end, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets proves itself as a visually stunning experience. The colors pop and the various creatures and locations are interesting to look at. But I did leave the movie theater feeling ultimately frustrated. Despite the quiet sound levels during the many chase scenes and fight sequences, I did find myself engaged 
with what was playing on screen, but I simply did not care about the main characters. At the movie's core is not Valerian. Luckily, it's not Valerian. But what is at the movie's core is this peaceful alien race that was displaced from their home planet and suffered a genocide at the hands of the humans. I'm not sure if this alien race was meant to be the emotional anchor of the story or not, but that's who I cared for the most. The characters of Valerian and Laureline are set up to be liked and rooted for, but I couldn't care less about their relationship. From the get-go, Valerian is set up to be a Han Solo type, which, to be fair, Han Solo in some way was based on the character of Valerian via the comic strip. But anyways, Valerian from the get-go is set up to be this Han Solo type, handsome, charismatic, and a lover of pretty women. But Dane DeHaan, the actor portraying Valerian, is not capable whatsoever of pulling it off. Every piece of dialogue that falls out of his mouth comes across as fake and disingenuine. He says often that he's, quote, handsome, charming, or that, you know, he's a soldier dedicated to his service. Oh, it... I almost forgot about this. He actually plays a major, so his, his real title is Major Valerian. So he apparently served for whatever government, and now along with Laureline, as she's actually Sergeant Laureline, they're both special agents of the human police force. Neither of these two look the part, and they play their characters like high schoolers playing stockbrokers or seasoned professionals in a school play. Cara Delevingne does manage to have a presence and attempts to outperform Dahan, who plays Valerian, despite the both of them not having any chemistry whatsoever. That's what ultimately makes this movie frustrating. Beautiful visuals, dazzling creative filmmaking is put on that screen. You have a very pretty score, musical score. There's a lot of great ideas here, but the dialogue is pretty bad, repetitive, The characters suck. The two leads don't work well together. I don't buy that they're both adults, seasoned veterans, when at least Valerian looks still like a brooding high schooler. So it was like a ping pong effect. A lot of stuff I liked, a lot of stuff I didn't like. Would I watch this movie again at home with very nice headphones, surround sound? Yeah, I, I think I would. Ultimately, that is why I am landing on 2.75 out of 5 with this movie. It's it's good, but I, I just can't really give it a full 3. There's a lot to like, but there's a lot not to like. As a side note, I did spend about 11 bucks to go see this movie. I didn't think I threw my money away, yet I'm still giving it a 2.75. It's crazy, right? But it's just one of those movies. All right, fair enough. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of the movies, and it looks like next week's movies are going to be Dark Tower and Detroit. So, without further ado... I believe it is time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. Is there something wrong with the food? No, the food was excellent. Perhaps you're not happy with the service? 
No, no, no complaints. It's just that we have to go. I'm having rather a heavy period. And we have a train to catch. Oh. Oh, yes, yes, of course, we have a train to catch. And I don't want to start bleeding all over the seats. The music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NickTwit12345. You can, of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to dane dehan i get to say this i really just want to continue to challenge myself and i want to grow as an artist i never want to stop take care son of files we'll talk at you again next week perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>